Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, if you are wondering where Joseph is, he is in Kentucky visiting family, and he is preaching to his home church this morning, and I get to fill in for him this morning, so you got me. Um, so we're going to be continuing in our series on Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this morning. If you want to take your Bibles, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, or on your phones or tablets, you can go to the Version app and follow along there as well. We're going to be continuing, like I said, in his series of Romans. And before we get started, I want to tell you all a little story. So uh, for most of you, uh, if not all of you don't know this, uh, me and Sarah Margaret, my wife, we got married last July. And uh, it was by far for me one of the best days of my life, if not the best day of my life. I can't speak for her, but um, I can only speak for me. And before the wedding, I wanted to go out and do something that I had been wanting to do for a very, very long time. And that was to get a tattoo. And Sarah Margaret told me, she said that I was not allowed to get a tattoo until after the wedding. And the reason that she gave me was because she wanted to get a tattoo as well, and she wanted us to do it together. Isn't she sweet? Now, the whole reason is she wanted me to pay for it, and I did. I paid for it. So we're on our honeymoon in Florida, and we found a uh, little tattoo parlor, and both me and Sarah Margaret got tattoos. We didn't get matching ones, uh, but we got tattoos together. And this is the tattoo that I got. It is the word faith in Braille. And now you might be asking, that's a really interesting tattoo to get. And when I decided that I was going to get tattoo and any more tattoos that I get, I want them to have a reason behind me getting them. And so the whole purpose of this tattoo is because the word faith is something that we as Christians have on a daily basis. And the whole concept of the word faith being in Braille is because we live by faith and not by sight. And so Braille is used for blind people to be able to read, and it culminates that feeling of walking by faith and not by sight in my life. And it also gives me the opportunity um, to explain to somebody my faith based off of my tattoos, or tattoo in this case. I only have one so far. Um, and that's what, I, that's what my goal in life, if I ever get a tattoo, is to ultimately be able to point back to Jesus and to be able to share the gospel with someone that I might not be able to start up a gospel conversation with. Even while I was getting the tattoo, the lady asked me who was, who was doing it, she asked, why are you getting this tattoo? What does it mean? And I was able to explain that to her. And she was like, that is incredible, and it clearly shows that you've put a lot of thought into your tattoo. And I was like, yes, I have. <laughs> yes. Um, but the reason I bring this up is because um, the Bible mentions the word faith 250 times in its entirety. That's a lot of times. And it's because faith is a big deal. It is the very cornerstone of our uh, Christianity. It is the um, very foundation of our faith, is faith. Uh, a biblical definition of faith incorporates both trust and belief and goes beyond simply recognizing the existence of God. And when I think about that, 
uh, these verses from Proverbs come into my mind. And it's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. And we all probably know these verses, but it's, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know Him, and He will make your paths straight. And when I, when I hear these verses, when I read these verses, this is what trust and faith is. It's believing in God. And it's understanding. Growing up as a kid, uh, I, was going, I was involved in church, and one of the things that I was involved in all the time was VBS. And we kind of do that here. We call it day camp. But VBS is a week-long uh, event in the summer for kids and there would always start each night with three pledges. The Pledge of Allegiance, the Pledge to the Christian Flag, and the Pledge to the Bible. And some of you may have heard the Pledge to the Bible, and some of you may have not. Um, and when I read these verses in Proverbs, it reminds me of this Pledge to the Bible. And the Pledge to the Bible goes, I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp into my feet and a light into my path and will hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. And so growing up as a kid in VBS and in church, I knew that when I said it, I knew it in my head. I understood it. It made sense to me. And now as an adult, I not only know it in my head, but I also know it in my heart. I believe in it and I have faith in it. And so it makes sense that the Bible would emphasize the word faith so much. And just like Joseph demonstrated last week with the bottle of water, true faith is fully taking something in. It's fully taking it in and fully understanding and fully believing. And so true faith means placing total trust in God's promises, His work, and His nature as portrayed in His Word. And so, again, faith is mentioned 250 times in the Bible, and that's a lot of times. And I, as I was studying and preparing, I wanted to see how many times the word faith is mentioned in the book of Romans. And so I researched it, I counted it, and depending on what translation you use, the average number of times that the word faith appears in Romans is 40 times. That's the average across multiple translations. So... I'm not a math guy by any stretch of the imagination. I can do algebra a little bit, okay. I still don't believe that numbers and letters should be involved in the same thing. Um, but I can, I can do a simple math problem. I can do algebra okay, but I'm not like probability and statistics kind of person. But I wanted to see, Romans mentions faith 40 times and the, Bible, it, the whole Bible mentions it 250 times. So I wanted to know what percentage of times that Romans, out of the entire Bible, mentions the word faith. And so I did the math, and it's 16%. Now, some of you may be thinking, 16 is kind of a, a low number. It can be, but when you go shopping and you see that something is 15 to 20% off, I got to get it, right? That's a good deal. 15, 20% off, I'm saving some money. And 16% might be a low number, but it's still a lot of times that one word is mentioned in one book out of the 66 books in the Bible. And today we're going to see justification through faith. And that's why this word faith is so important today. And Paul has been discussing justification uh, in the first bit of Romans. And now he is uh, transitioning into Romans chapter 5. And so Romans chapter 4 ends with the word justification, 
And verse 1 in Romans chapter 5 starts this way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, before we continue and focus on the meat that is stuffed into these verses and the content that we're going to get into and dive in today, I want to focus on one more word. You guys did not realize that you were coming to English class today, did you? But that's what happens when you marry an English teacher. It is ingrained into your daily life. I have said things when I'm tired and she corrects me. And it's great because here's the thing. When she corrects my English, she's doing it out of love and it makes me a better communicator. And sometimes she has to remind me more than one time that what I've said is wrong. And sometimes I still don't listen. But continuing on, I want to focus on the first word of chapter 5, verse 1, and that is the word therefore. The word therefore itself is a transitional word, and the purpose of the word therefore is to transition from one idea to the next idea. And in order to uh, understand what is coming up, we have to understand what has happened previously. And so the past two weeks, Pastor Joseph has been going through Romans chapter 4 and understanding and outlining the argument that Paul makes for Abraham's justification. And many times throughout chapter 4, Paul says these words about Abraham and uh, his justification. It says, it was credited to him for righteousness. And so in the last few verses Paul of chapter 4, Paul transitioned his argument from Abraham's justification to our justification. And this is what he says in Romans 4 and the last two verses, 23 and 25, or 23 through 25. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for Abraham alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who, was raised, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to, our, uh, over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And so what Paul is saying here is that the whole reason, the, the whole thing about our faith is that we believe in the death of Jesus and that his blood washes away our sins. And if we truly believe this, then it provides our justification. It's like we have never sinned before. And we are made right be, uh, with God because of Christ. And so Joseph has been talking about justification, and Paul is talking about justification. And back in October, we took uh, students to Awanata Valley for our fall retreat, and it was fantastic. And the second day, we had uh, the full day a couple students came up to me and they were asking me questions. They were like, we have some biblical questions that we don't understand and we want your help to understand them. And I thought that was great because they're coming to me and asking me for help and advice. And I'll tell you right now, some of them, some of the questions, I nailed out of the park. It was like a home run. Anybody watch spring training games uh, this week? You see some of the guys get up there and they hit a home run right away. I felt like that. I felt like I had just nailed the ball out of the park and answered that question to the best that I could have. And then other questions, I was like, wow, I really feel dumb right now. Um, and that's, that's how it goes. But the question of justification came up. And justification and righteousness. And I could tell that this was a concept that 
the student was struggling with. And as I was thinking about how to explain it, I feel like God gave me this image. And so I want to walk you through this as well. And so all of us here in our, our experience, um, I would say that all of you would be people who would go clubbing, right? Right? You go to a club, go have some fun. Because all my experience comes from watching movies and TV shows. So that's pretty much the most accurate way to depict that. Um, and in each movie and TV show, uh, there's a guy that stands at the front of the club behind a velvet rope, and he has a clipboard, and it's a guy that kind of looks like this. I mean, he's standing there, he's pretty buff, he doesn't smile, anything like that. And this guy's the bouncer, right? His one and only job is to either let people in or kick people out. That's his sole purpose, standing behind this velvet rope, is to let people in or kick them out. So, you, in your experience of going clubbing and going to a club, uh, you walk up and the bouncer immediately tells you, or he asks you, you know, what's your name? You tell him your name, and he looks on his list, and there's two reasons why he won't let you in. The first, most obvious, your name's not on the list. You don't get in. The second reason, and I'm not saying anything about anyone here, but you're not famous. Famous people, you know, especially in movies, you see they'll walk up to the, the bouncer and there's a guy standing there trying to get in, right? And a celebrity walks by and the bouncer's like, oh, yes. He doesn't even look at his clipboard. He's like, oh, yes, we've been expecting you and lifts up the velvet rope and the celebrity walks in, right? And he puts the velvet rope down and then goes back to dealing with the person. And so this guy tells you, he's like, listen, dude, you're nobody famous. Your name's not on my list. I can't let you in here. And so now you're sad and disappointed because your night of fun that you had been planning is ruined, right? And so as you start to leave, you notice that there, there's a person that walks by through the door and you catch them out of, the, out of the corner of your eye. You get a glimpse of this person. And you stop getting ready to walk away and you turn back to the bouncer and you say, I know that person that's in there. And the bouncer says, there is no way, I guarantee you, there's no way that you know who that is. And your argument is, I do, I know them. And the bouncer's like, okay, stay right here. I'm going to go get them. And so the bouncer goes and gets this person that you've pointed out, and he brings them back. And before the bouncer can even ask this guy if you know them or if he knows you, he goes, the, the guy that comes out, he goes, oh my gosh, I haven't seen you in so long. And it turns out that the guy who you notice He's your roommate, or she's your roommate from college. And this person that you know just happens to be the owner. And so the owner tells the bouncer, he says, listen, I know this person, let him in. And now your night of fun can continue on because the owner vouched for you to the bouncer. All right, so what does this have to do? with the message this morning. God is the bouncer and Jesus is the owner. When we get to heaven, when we, when we get to heaven and we stand before God and God asks us, why do you get to enter? We get to point at Jesus and say it's because of Him. I am made right because of Him. I am made clean because of Him. And I am forgiven because of Him. 
And Paul explains it another way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. He says this, For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And this whole idea of being sons and daughters of God is the process and the idea of adoption. Adoption is such a beautiful thing. And now that we are made right because of our faith and belief in Jesus, we are now adopted into the family of God. Some of, uh, some of you all may know that Sarah Margaret is adopted. And not only is Sarah Margaret adopted, but her sister is adopted as well. And they're here this morning. Um, and so as I was preparing this message this morning, or uh, this week and, and the weeks prior, I felt God leading me to go down this avenue of adoption. And I wanted to know what people thought or felt during the process of adoption. And so I reached out to Sarah Margaret's mother, and I asked her, I said, what are some things that you thought or felt during the process of adopting Sarah Margaret and Sarah Margaret's sister? And this is what she had to say. She says, I remember the first time they laid Sarah Margaret in my arms. Her maternal grandmother wanted to show me that she had all of her fingers and toes. I could have cared less. It didn't matter to me. She was my baby, the little girl we had prayed for. God has blessed us with both of our girls. He is letting us borrow them, but they belong to Him. I have always known, as much as I love them, they are only mine for a little while. They have always belonged to God first. And I talked to one of my uh, youth pastor friends. Uh, him and his wife are getting ready to adopt as well. And I asked him the same question. I said, man, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings during this process? And he said, the child that we adopt has been chosen by us and doesn't know it. They don't know their need for adoption, and we are bringing them out of a situation that could not provide them and adopting them into our family that can provide for them. We brought them from a position that they did not deserve into our family. The cost of adoption for this child is $40,000, and for us as believers, it was Christ's life. There are aspects of adoption that I didn't consider until I was in it. And this is, this is awesome. Ad adoption is such a sweet thing. Me and Sarah Margaret, we, we've talked about potentially in the future, not anytime soon, okay, um, but in the future, adopting one, maybe two of our own and, and hearing the words of her parents and my friend who's getting ready to adopt, it, it's incredible. But I want you to hear what, what God's character says about His adoption of us. Ephesians 1.5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do, and it gave Him great pleasure. We are now members of God's forever family. Growing up in church, uh, my dad was pastor of a very traditional, traditional church. We sang the old hymns of the church, praise God. And there's one hymn that I, I remember very well, very vividly, because we didn't, if we didn't sing it every week, we sang it every other week, and we, we would always sing the chorus. And the hymn is called The Family of God. And I'm not going to sing it to you because none of us want that. 
Um, I don't have as eloquent of a singing voice as Joseph does or Chris, and so I'm not going to sing it this morning, but I'll read it to you. And the chorus of this hymn goes, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel the sod. For I'm a part of the family, the family of God. And if we're believers in this room this morning, that is such an incredible benefit that we receive through justification because of our faith. We now get to say that we are members of God's family. We are now related to, we are now sons and daughters of God. But that's not it. That's not all that we get from our justification because of our faith. And Paul in Romans chapter 5 gives us the benefits of our justification. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so the first thing I want us to see is that we, as, as one of the benefits, we now have peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Jesus Christ. And the benefit, this benefit, having peace with God, goes hand in hand with the central purpose of the book of Romans. Paul wanted the Romans to understand, and he wants us to understand as well, that we as Christians, as believers in God, we are to be both unified with God and with one another. It's all about unity. You see, Paul, just as other New Testament writers, sees the cross of Christ as the greatest unifying event where God has reconciled himself to us. And we're going to talk about reconciliation here in a little bit. And not only does he talk about it here in Romans, but he also talks about it in another letter. Because this is something that is so key to the whole purpose of Christianity. And so Paul mentions this again in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, he says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making His appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so now, because of justification by our faith, we can now say that we have peace with God and that God has peace with us. And when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, the, the punishment of that sin, God said, if you take of the fruit and eat, you will surely die. And He wasn't talking about a physical death where they would die on the spot. No, He was talking about spiritual death. And that spiritual death is eternal separation from God. But now, because of Jesus, because of the cross of Christ, we now have access and we have peace to God, or peace with God. And because now that we have peace with God, we are called as Christians, as believers, to have peace with others. And Jesus said it best. He said in Matthew 5, verse 9, He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of of God. So just as God made peace with us, we should strive to make peace with others. Sometimes it's easier than others. Sometimes I don't want to make peace with others, right? There are people that just get under your skin and you're like, how am I supposed to make peace with them? That's what we're called to do. 
Secondly, the second benefit of justification is we now have access to God. Romans 5.2, it says, We have also obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand. There was this guy who uh, passed away and he found himself standing on the outskirts of heaven and he was approaching the gates. And so as he's making his way up, he's noticing that the gates aren't opening. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he sees Peter. Peter standing by the gate. And Peter asks him kind of smugly, he's like, yeah, what are you doing here? And the guy kind of sits there and he thinks for a minute, he doesn't know what to say. And Peter says, Here, here's, here's what we're going to do. You give me a list of reasons why you should enter heaven, and I'll score points. I'll keep score for you. And if you get to 100 points, then I'll let you in. And the guy is like, okay, I can do this. I got this. And so he starts to think. And the first reason he gives, he gives reason number one, I attended church regularly every week. And Peter gives him a round of applause and like, that's good, that's good, I'll give you two points. And the man's like, what? Years of my life going to church every single week and I only get two points? He's disappointed. So he thinks a little bit more and he goes, okay, reason number two, reason number two, here we go, this, this is a surefire win. When I went to church, I consistently gave my tithes and offerings. And Peter says, good, that's great. That'll get you three points. So the man, he, he starts thinking again. He, he's thinking, he's thinking, he's thinking. And reason number three, I participated in ministry. And Peter says, another two points. Congratulations. And so now the man is, is starting to get um, distraught. He, he's thinking, he's, he's spending time trying to come up with his reasons and he's, he's not doing so hot. He's got seven points so far out of 100. He's not doing so good. So he's thinking a little bit longer, a little bit harder. And he says, all right, this is it. Surefire win. This will definitely get the gates open. Give me 100 points. Here we go. I shared Jesus with two of my friends. And Peter goes, way to go. So proud of you. That's incredible. For that one, I'll give you five points. And so now the man, exhausted after thinking, he can't think of anything else and he's discouraged, and he says this. He says, if it goes at this rate, the only way I can enter heaven is by the grace of God. And immediately as he says that, the, the gates of heaven open, and he is welcomed in. You see, through justification by our faith, we have inherited full access to grace and forgiveness of God. It is by grace alone that we have access to God. There is nothing we could do, nothing we ever have done, and nothing we ever will do that will give us the, the access to God other than the grace that we receive from Him. And I love this acronym for grace. I learned this when I was younger. I can't remember who, who explained this to me, but I, I heard it, and I've never been able to forget it. And, and, and grace literally means God's riches at Christ's expense. This is so powerful because there's nothing we could ever do to receive grace. Grace is receiving things that we don't deserve. We just wrapped up 
in the student ministry a series on the book of Jonah. And the tagline that I put on there was Jonah, a gracious God. And not only did God have grace and mercy on the Ninevites who uh, Jonah was to witness to and to speak to on behalf of God, but God also uh, showed grace on Jonah. Because I don't know if you've read Jonah recently, but if you haven't, you might want to go back and read it again and just see how pathetic Jonah was. Jonah ran 2,500 miles in the opposite direction of where God wanted him to be, when in all reality, it only took 500 miles to get to Nineveh. He ran away. When he got there, he didn't preach the word that God had spoken to him. He preached from his anger and his hatred for the people. And when the people repented and uh, started fasting, he was mad and he was angry at God. And all throughout the story of Jonah, God shows grace to Jonah. And it's not because of anything that Jonah had ever done or Jonah did in this story, but it's because of God's character and who He is. He is a gracious and a loving God. So we have peace with God, we have access with God, but we also have hope. We have hope. Verse 2, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And as believers, we now have hope that endures because we can put our hope in something that is far better than anything we can put our hope in in this world right now. Despite war, despite famine, despite sickness, despite anything and everything that could happen while we are alive, we have hope that God's will and God's plan will be done the way that it should be. And we are also, as believers, because of our faith, we get to inherit the kingdom of God. The hymn, the family of God, that line, the second to last line, joint heirs with Jesus. We now inherit everything that God has to offer. And so because now we have this hope, we should be people of hope. Our lives should not be defined by despair or disaster or whatever is going on in this world. It should be defined in the hope and in the inspiring nature of Jesus. So we have peace, we have access, we have hope. The fourth benefit that we receive because of our justification is joy in our suffering. Verses 3 and 4, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that, the, that those afflictions produce endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. As Christians, as believers, we are marked by joy even in our dark and painful moments. This reminds me of this guy named John Bunyan. John Bunyan. Not to be confused with Paul Bunyan, who uh, while uh, walking and dragging his axe behind him, he carved out the Grand Canyon. No, these two are not related in any way, shape, or form. Um, and not to be confused with, uh, this is not the guy that discovered Bunyan, which is a medical foot disease. This is, it has nothing to do with any of that. This is a real guy. He was an English writer and preacher, and he lived from 1628 to 1688. And as, he, uh, as his popularity as a preacher uh, began 
growing and growing was around the time of Charles II, King Charles II. And under King Charles II, he made a decree that anyone who didn't adhere to the uh, English church, the Church of England, that they would be thrown into jail. And so in 1661, Bunyan found himself sitting in the county jail. The worst thing for Bunyan was that he couldn't see his wife and his four kids, um, but that, that didn't bother him. He could have freed himself by promising to never preach again, but he refused to do that. When asked why, he said, I would rather remain in prison until moss grows on my eyelids than fail to do what God has commanded. Now, if I were John Bunyan in this situation, and there was moss growing in my prison cell, I think I would ask for room transfer. Um, I don't know. That just, to me, it doesn't sound like the room is very clean. And I would like to sleep in a bed where I don't have to compete with moss growing on my eyes. But that's just me. Um, But the imprisonment that he faced wasn't as bad as we think it would be. He still got to uh, see his family and have visitors. He even got to spend a couple nights at home. There was one time he even got to travel to London. Um, and even more so, uh, the, the people over the prison and everything like that would allow him to speak and preach to unlawful assemblies. And more importantly, during his time of imprisonment, he found the time and he found the opportunity and the uh, inspiration to write. And from 1660 until 1672, it is noted that he wrote at least nine books, some of which you might have heard of. Uh, Profitable Mediations, I never heard of that one. Christian Behavior, I've never heard of that one. The Holy City, never heard of that one. Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, I've never heard of that one. But Despite these being some of his best works, from 1667 until 1672, he spent a majority of his time writing his legacy, what he is most well known for. And in those years, he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress, which if you have ever read it, is a story about a guy who is on a path and has to go between trials and afflictions and find his way. And so Bunyan found his joy not only in Jesus in the midst of his suffering, and the suffering was not just something that was physical, and it not only reflected in his physical life, but it also reflected in his writing. And many people have benefited from the book Pilgrim's Progress because John Bunyan took the time to write it. Verse 5 says, This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, for Paul, the whole reason he's writing this is because the central motivating factor was the love of God. And this was the motivation behind Jesus' death, behind the cross, behind Him sending His Son to be a sacrifice. God justified us and saved us through a magnificent act of self-sacrifice. And God's love provides things that no one else can. No one else can provide the things that God's love provides. 
And we're going to look at those. God's love provides us with rescue. Verses 6 and 7, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for just a person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. And Paul is saying it's just rare for anyone to go out and just die for someone, but Christ died for us. God sent His Son to die for us. There are people that I love that now I would say, yeah, I would die for them. Sure, I would take a bullet for them, but if it came down to it, could I really? Is that something that I would really do? Would I follow up with what I've said? The other night, me and Sarah and Margaret went to a concert in Greenville, and we were walking back home through the, or we were walking back to the car in the parking garage, and for whatever reason, Sarah and Margaret goes, what would happen if somebody stepped out in front of us with a gun right now? And I'm like, well, that's a great and encouraging thing to think about as we're walking to our car. This is great. And I said, well, in all honesty, um, I would push you in between a car in between some of the cars parked to get you out of the way and do everything I could to protect you. But God did something so much better than, than, than push us into protection. God sent His Son that He loves to die for us that He loves. If you've ever doubted God's love for you, I want you to look closely at this verse. The next verse, verse 8. But God proves His own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you've ever doubted the love of God, this verse speaks true to His love. Just look at it. Look at this verse. Look at the cross of Christ and see exactly what God's love is all about. You see, this is true love. If you watch the Super Bowl, which I did this year because I had to and not because I wanted to, um, after the, the trophy presentation and all that kind of stuff, there's a moment where Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift lock arms. Aww. And then the commentators have the audacity to go, that's true love. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because this is what true love is. True love is self-sacrificial. It's edifying where it builds one another up. It's universal. It's for everyone. And it's unconditional. There's nothing that we could do to receive this true love of Jesus, of God. But it's because He loves us so much that He's willing to do this for us because He loves us. And so God provides rescue, but He also provides, this love provides reconciliation. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? Reconciliation is a, a word uh, that is thrown around in church circles. Um, it's, it's a big word, but it literally just means the restoration of friendly relations. And that's what the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was. It was God restoring the relationship between us and Him. Forever separated by our sin, God stepped in, sent His Son 
to restore the relationship. I don't know how often you keep up with pop culture and celebrities and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to mention Taylor Swift again, and I promise it'll be the last time, okay? So just bear with me. Back in 2018, before her reputation tour, Taylor Swift received a a gift from another celebrity named Katy Perry. Katy Perry and Taylor Swift had an ongoing rivalry and feud that was covered in the media for 10 years, and then finally it ended. Katy Perry sent a note alongside a literal, real-life olive branch as a peace offering. And Taylor Swift, of course, she posted it on her social medias, and you can only see part of what the note said, but part of the note said, Hey, old friend, I've been doing some reflecting on past miscommunications and the hurt feelings between us, and I am deeply sorry. She sent a physical olive branch as a peace offering. And if you look at the history of olive branches, uh, you could trace it all the way back to 5th century B.C. Greece. People uh, used olive branches to display plenty and riches. But more often than that, they would give olive branches as a peace offering to the Greek gods. They would give olive branches as a peace offering to their gods. But instead... God, instead of asking for a peace offering from us, he sent the ultimate peace offering to us in the form of his son. And on the cross, God extended an olive branch. And not only did he extend an olive branch, but he extended his arms wide open to demonstrate that we are welcome and we are accepted. The love of God is not meant to be uh, impersonal. It's meant to be transformational. To truly know this love is to be changed forever. And I think all of us in this room, if we, if we have experienced the true love of God, we can say that it is truly transformational. Because love came to us in flesh and blood, and it is experienced in flesh and blood. You see, God pours out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit as seen in chapter 5, verse 5, and a love that demonstrates to us on the cross seen in verse 8, so that we might love Him and love others. And this is part of the twofold command that Christ gives us to love God and to love people, including our enemies. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 44, You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To do this, to live out this command, is to be just like our Father who lives in heaven, who while we were still sinners and enemies of Him, gave His one and only Son for us that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for Your love, that it is true love. Thank You for the benefits that we receive through justification, and thank You for the gifts that we can receive through Your love. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy, which we have done nothing to, uh, nothing to deserve to receive, but we still receive those things from You. You have adopted us into your family and there is no way that we could ever repay you for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's in your name we pray.
Amen.